The Start On Demand. On demand. Provinces loosening some restrictions on Friday. Restaurants can now have up to 50% capacity, but still with a household only rule. We'll check in with the Gates on Roblin to see if that helps. Six former politicians from three parties calling all Manitoba leaders to do better. We'll speak with the House leader, Kelvin Gertzen. We speak with architect and urbanist Brent Bellamy, who weighs in on Portage Place, the Bay, the noise of Polo Park, and active transportation. And we had a fun chat about the non-injury injuries that we suffer, like a stubbed toe or a paper cut. It, no damage is done, but it feels like it's the end of the world. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Wednesday, March 3rd podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and I'm just going through our text messages at 204-780-6868, starting from about just after 4.30. Um, Cam Poitras actually alerted us to this, so I had to ask producer Jeff Forte, hey, can you hear the air feed? Because in the studio, I'm listening to our feed, and I'm listening to The Shift, which is our national overnight show that's broadcast from Vancouver, but apparently our transmitter couldn't decide if it was in Man- if it wanted to be in Manitoba today or somewhere in the southern United States. Poitras thought it was a station out of Missouri. <laughs> Some of our listeners are saying it sounded like Texas. So it sounds like we're back. But once again, we had to wake up our uh, one of our engineers <laughs> before he was ready to get up so he could save the day. Hi, Greg. Hi, Brett. Hi, Loren. Bonjour, monsieur. <laughs> Uh, apparently, I it was the French radio station. <laughs> just let's go all the way across the pond. Wow, that could just be in Saint Boniface. Like you just look across the river, my friend. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, it sounds like we're okay now. But if our signal flips in and out, feel free to let us know. Uh, the, the feed is clean at Radio Player on the app. It's clean at cjob.com. But uh, that it is funny, and it's more of a winter thing too, right? Isn't it, Gregory? You can sometimes pick up radio stations from quite far away, depending on where you're sitting or where even how your body's <laughs> positioned in the car. Yes, and uh, at home, if you're prepared to be a human antenna, you can get stations from all over the U.S. Uh, that kept me awake night after night after night when I was a kid. Uh, living in Brandon in particular, because we lived on the edge of Brandon and on clear winter nights, you could get KOA from Denver. I believe that's Denver. And then there's another station in San Francisco that I could get at night. Stations into Illinois, Iowa were not uncommon at all. And then the closer you get to Winnipeg, maybe in uh, your neck of the woods, Loren, it's not uncommon to get uh, stations from all the way down in Missouri, in Texas, and even uh, Chicago and further east. Pretty, that's it's pretty gets, fascinating, actually. Well, that's where it gets fun to drive, especially if you do an overnight trip anywhere. We'd often drive out west, say, for some skiing over Christmas years and years ago, not recently, and you'd be in the car somewhere in Saskatchewan, dead of night, hit that scan button. 
she goes around and then it hits something. You're like, ooh, <laughs> where have we landed? And you have to listen for the longest time trying to figure out deep south, where am I? Oh, maybe east coast. Like, yeah, so it can make it fun. Listening in between the cracks and crackles. I love where, that. When it, what did especially, they say? When it, especially when it wraps all the way around. Like, you're like, oh boy, there's nothing. It found nothing. Where am I? You know, you're in the middle of nowhere when. <laughs> so, we had some technical difficulties this morning. Hopefully, that situation is resolved. Thank you very much to Engineer John for uh, being our savior, as always. Speaking of technical difficulties, not so much a technical difficulty, but um, Greg, you, you had yourself. Uh, sort of a, just a personal technical difficulty, uh, so to speak, with your boys. Miscommunication, so we say. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's sometimes there are those emails you get at a certain time of the day, the subject line and maybe the first one or two lines that you might be able to see uh, before you actually open it, give you a clue as to what's going on. And there's a certain time of day that I get emails from my wife and it's about what's going on at school. And so yesterday, just as I was parking my vehicle, I got this notification for this email, took a deep breath and opened it, and I knew exactly what it was going to be. And so before I go on with this story, I want to apologize for anyone who has a reputation which precedes them. (laughs) (laughs) Because I read this email as I was walking through the garage into the house, steam coming out of my ears, I called, shouted, commanded one of the boys to uh, come and see me. I told him to turn off his video games and whatever else he was doing because that was the end of that for the rest of the day. He came upstairs. He said, what's going on, Dad? I said, how about you tell me? Read this email. What class is this? (laughs) I don't know. You tell me what class this is. And he's going, assignment, missed assignment. He goes, Dad, I don't go to that school. (laughs) I had the wrong kid. (laughs) But because that kid is typically the one who I get emails about, I had prejudged and I I had figured I had, I even had a strategy for his punishment all worked out. So I looked at him and I apologized. I said, buddy, I'm so sorry. He says, well, I kind of do deserve it. <laughs> so we hugged it out and then uh, child number two got the lamb basting and, and all is well again. So once again, on behalf of uh, parents who uh, prejudge their kids uh, based on their, the reputations that have been established, firmly established, I, I may say, um, I, I, and I, yeah, my apologies. That's there a roller coaster. Sorry, go ahead, Laura. I was gonna say there wasn't a, there isn't a sibling out there who hasn't been blamed for some <laughs> other siblings. Like there's not one. You can't find it. You get blamed for your brother or your sister's problems at least once growing up. That's uh, got to be such a roller coaster of emotions too, Greg. Because you walk in, you're mad, and then you feel bad, yes. right? And then you're, you're you're even happy at this little bonding moment. Yes. And then you have to take a deep breath and get mad again. Had to crank up the angry machine. <laughs> Anyway, so my pledge is just to, you know, sim simmer just a little bit more. So much to discuss today, of course, on reopening. We'll get into that in our next segment as restrictions will loosen slightly on Friday. Also, coming up after 7.07, we're going to talk to Richard Cloutier, Greg, about Portage Place. What we now know after yesterday, we were Uh, wondering, is the deal dead?
Oh boy, moving goalposts, that's a terminology you'll hear in negotiations and it looks as though our friends from Ontario Starlight uh, Developments is re- have really dramatically moved the goalposts, Loren, and we were speculating yesterday, at least I was very openly about, okay, so we know what kind of money the Manitoba government, the city of Winnipeg, and now apparently the federal government are prepared to put on the table. Perhaps it's time to pull away on this side and say, here's what we have to offer. Anybody else want in on this? Yeah, and what's being offered has changed. You talked about moving the goalposts. So the ask from Starlight, as we understood it, was 2020, $20 million from each level of government so that they would redevelop Portage Place, a $400 million redevelopment. So we kept saying, yep, we know the province and the city has signed on to this agreement, but the feds had been quiet. And it turns out that just about a week ago, Starlight, according to Dan Vandell, who is uh, a cabinet minister with the Liberals, they came in and increased that ask, more than doubled it to $50 million plus. There was an ask for a loan as well. So there's a grant proposal and a loan proposal. The money has changed. So it sounds like the Liberals are still, the federal government's still for this, but it's not the deal that we've been talking about. <laughs> we have a great idea, but we don't have any money. We want all your money is basically <laughs> what they're saying. <laughs> Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. This happened on Friday morning. I had an almost paper cut. I thought it wasn't cut, but then I put on some hand sanitizer and thought, nope, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> you should have a chat sometimes on the worst non-injuries. I've had two babies, and you know, I'm not trying to go down the road of like, oh, you have you don't know pain until you've had labor. But even then, I will still stub my toe and be like, oh, that just hurts so bad. <laughs> and then I think to myself, like, you've pushed out an eight pound. I feel like you know your benchmark here for pain is pretty skewed. <laughs> So let's discuss non-injury injuries, the dumb ways we hurt ourselves where it hurts so much, but really you're not hurt. Or maybe you are, like maybe you hurt yourself really bad doing something really dumb. Like for example, I almost broke my finger in a grocery cart once. I had it between like two of the little metal bars and then it twisted and almost bent my finger way out of shape. And one of our colleagues actually once broke his leg after getting up and his leg was asleep and he fell over. Poor guy was in a cast for like three months. So there it is. <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh. I feel so bad when I laugh at that story. Uh, I know. it's, But even he was kind of laughing about it. But uh, there it is. Either the non-injury injuries or the dumb ways in which you've hurt yourself for real. So let's go around the horn here. We got Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, Jeff Forte, Cam Poitras, and uh, Jeff Brunt. Cam Poitras, let's start with you, sir. Uh, well, and, and I, and I don't suggest anybody does this, uh, cause I told my doctor about it and uh, she was horrified. I had a really bad ingrown toe ah. and I decided I was going to take care of it myself and I ripped it out with a pair oh, of pliers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah, it was like uh, I just I I had I had a little my little my little nail clippers and I clipped it off and then I just ripped it out. How old were you? Oh God, I was in high school. I must have been sixteen, I think. Uh, it was so it was just bothering me so much, and I was just like, I'm just getting rid of this thing. I'm taking care of it. And I tell people about that, and they're like, How could you do that? 
And then I told my doctor, and I said, you know, we were just going over my feet, I guess. I got foot problems, probably because I walk around barefoot all the time. Um, <laughs> summer feet. You didn't have your summer no, feet ready. No, I didn't have my summer feet. It did, yes, it did happen in the wintertime. I didn't have my summer feet yet. Um, but, yeah, just – and then it, it hurt, but it went away. It actually worked. But don't do it. Please don't do it. But, Cam, when I, I was a kid, I had an ingrown toenail. I think I was in grade 6 or grade 7, and my doctor – he didn't use pliers, but he might as well have. He basically just pushed it out. I don't know what kind of tool he used, but he said it was dug in too far and he just had to push it out. And I screamed like I was in a medieval torture oh, chamber. It, it was terrible. I don't know why I did it. It was so painful. Did you scream like the Dread Pirate oh, Roberts was, in yes, The Princess Bride? Yes, just like the Dread. Yes, exactly like the Dread Pirate Roberts. Hooked up to the machine. You will face <laughs> the machine. Mackling, what about you? Well, you know, uh, for me, usually it's those little blemishes that you get either under under my beard or in, on my scalp, and then you just touch it, and it's just, you know, you're not injured, but it, it is painful. But I want to give a shout-out. I know I've already told a story about uh, my kids today, and so uh, for anybody groaning about that, uh, get over it. Uh, I want to pay homage to one of my boys who, during celebration of the 2019 Grey Cup, anybody remember 2019? Was running around, stubbed his toe on a bar stool, and everyone kind of made fun of him for limping around for the next 24, 36 hours. Turned out it was broken. And even his grandma, who loved him very much, said, Alexander, you're fine. Just go to school. <laughs> no, he had a broken toe and was in a cast oh, for wow. about six weeks. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, there That's you go. terrible. Jeff Braun. Mine's also a, a broken toe story. I was, I think, about 12, and we were having a camp out at a, a friend's house out on a farmyard, and they had, uh, a, like, a little horseshoe setup thing, and, you know, you got to throw the horseshoes around the metal pegs in the ground, so the pegs are in the ground, and we're running around in the dark, and I was barefoot, too, like Cam, and I <laughs> ran into the peg with my little toe at full tilt at as fast as I could run, and it just jacked that toe up something fierce. It was the most pain I've ever felt. But the next morning, it was all swollen and stuff. My parents came to pick me up, and then we were headed out on vacation to the Black Hills or something. So they picked me out. Ten minutes later, we're across a border in the U.S., and an hour after that, we get out of the car, and I'm limping. And my mom's like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, oh, I really hurt my toe. And she's like, oh, my God, you need to go to the doctor. And... For whatever reason, they were like, well, we're in the States. We're not going to the doctor here. We'll just have to wait till we get home. <laughs> At which point, the doctor two weeks later is like, well, there's nothing you can do for a little toe like that. So I just have a really ugly looking little toe on my right foot. Everyone's little toe is ugly. Yeah, That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, we've all bashed our, uh, our pinky toes and the nail falls off because it just can't grow back fully. What yeah. about you, Loren? Well, I'm thinking about Greg's story about how his son was just told to basically suck it up and how often you say to the kids, you know, when they stub their toe, you're fine, you're fine, because you want them to move on. A couple months ago, to this day, I have problems with my right wrist. I can't hold things. When I put pressure on it, it hurts. Sometimes it aches when it's colder out because two months ago, and I'm just even embarrassed to admit how it happened, we were playing this game, and I don't know why my youngest and I came up with this, but when he would yell, winner, winner, chicken dinner, I had to chase him. 
I, that's it. That's the game. He'd yell, winner, winner, chicken dinner. And I'm like, here I come. <laughs> and I tripped over a chair, fell on the ground, smashed my knee, smashed my wrist. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And I'm thinking, don't cry, don't cry. And I'm sure I fractured my wrist and banged up my knee. And my kids are standing there. And they go, remember what you always say, Mom? You're fine. <laughs> so I had to get up and just keep going as he's yelling, winner, winner, chicken dinner. And honest to God, I cannot tell you how often I've thought to myself, I have probably fractured or at the very least sprained this wrist because even now if I put weight on it, it hurts. But I didn't even want to go to the doctor and talk about the chicken game because I don't even know how it happened. <laughs> Kids told me to suck it up, so I did. And here we are. I, why do we always have to say you're fine after someone hurts themselves? Because you don't want to deal with it. Yeah, well, I, I, Basically, that's it. <laughs> when, when I just recently hurt my wrist, like I was trying to convince myself that I was fine. Like I was like, oh, if I pick up my jacket, it's not broken. I couldn't pick up my jacket. And I was like, no, no, it's still fine. <laughs> but the next day, you know, I didn't go to the hospital until like over 24 hours later. And I was just trying to convince myself that I was fine when really I wasn't. And what, that would you consider that your uh, well? That's certainly not a non-injury injury. That's an actual injury. Yeah, that's an actual injury. But uh, I guess during the summer, I was uh, my, my friend had a knot in her back, so I'm trying to massage it out after a few wobbly pops. And she's a <laughs> she's a massage therapist, so she's going like, "No, you got to dig into it. Like, dig into it harder." And so I'm going, "Okay." Like here, I'm going to put all my weight into you now. And so I'm putting all my weight into her, and she's lying on the ground, so I don't have a good stance, uh, like I'm putting all my pressure on my arms on her back. And so I lost my balance. I went forward and I ended up having my face hit the ground and I got carpet burn all <laughs> on your face, oh. all but my face. And nobody knew about this because it was my first day of vacation. So I had the whole week off. So nobody here saw it. And I never told anyone about it up until now. And it's actually still red to this day. <laughs> oh, my goodness. How long ago was this? In the summer? In the summer. It was August. Wow. Late August. We start this hour at Portage Place. The redevelopment plan is not dead, but it has hit what some might consider a major snag. Yeah, as we've been telling you here on the start, Starlight, which are the developers behind this $400 million redevelopment of the downtown mall, they have been telling us that they've been waiting for the federal government to sign on to a deal that would see Ottawa give $20 million to this project, the same way that the province has given $20 million and the city has agreed to give $20 million. At least that's how we understood the ask to be. Liberal MP Dan Vandell says it's slightly different. Starlight, uh, a little bit over a week ago, uh, have upped their ask to the federal government from $20 million to $50 million and uh, a $240 million loan from the federal government. Uh, that took everybody by surprise, especially took me by surprise at this late stage of their, of their, own, uh, their own deadline to uh, all of a sudden up, up the ante. Uh, nevertheless, uh, our, our, our government through CMHC is, uh, is ready to, to meet with Starlight and talk about how we can work together Richard Cluche co-hosts the news alongside Julie Buckingham. He was the first to bring us the exclusive details on this entire Portage Place plan. Well, all the details except for this sort of major stumbling block now, Richard. How are we supposed to feel about this change in ask from Starlight? I, I don't look at uh, this as uh, a major impediment. I look at this as some public negotiation that's going on. Um, this, this is going to get done. Uh, I was told 
that the feds are in for $30 million. Uh, the loan guarantee is not unusual given the fact that up to 30% of the housing in this will be um, geared towards affordable housing. And again, that's CMHC backing this. So a lot of those dollars on the loan side would be uh, Canada Mortgage and, and Housing. So that doesn't surprise me. The up to $50 million, I need clarification. I think we all need clarification. Because when you look at this, Starlight decided on Monday to go forward and say to us at 680 CJOB, we need to get this thing going and started. So I'm told that the interview with Hirsch from Starlight was um, not taken well in the corridors of power in Ottawa. So I think there was a little bit of communications and changing the channel there. So Vandell comes on, not just our station yesterday, but peppers the media with this story that it's actually Starlight that is changing the conversation and we need some more time. Starlight now has gone dark. They're not talking at this point. So I think there was some public negotiation going on simply because Starlight officials are fairly they're fairly frustrated that this isn't going fast enough. Now, depending on timing of vaccine, everybody anticipates a federal election either in June, more likely in the fall, and that they're thinking that this is going to be part of a federal election announcement. So I think what we're witness to here is a bit of, um, a bit of public gamesmanship and some open negotiations that I think will get back on target in the days and weeks to come. And sometimes in the media, we're used that way. And I feel that that's how this went down. We were used by both sides to kind of send warning shots to get this thing going again. So sadly, that's sort of typical sometimes, Richard, when these develop, big development plans go. Someone comes forward and says one thing, and the other side then feels like they have to step forward and give their their side. And so it, it's supposed to be private negotiations in some respect, but it is public dollars. So how, many, how much of taxpayer dollars at the federal level do you think is going to end up going to this? I know you said you, you had heard $30 million, but the ask is for upwards to $50 million. Yeah, Is no, there a I, middle I, ground I, here? Or? I, I know there's 30 and there's certainly... What Starlight has said that they're going to put more dollars into uh, a community center, the homelessness initiative. Uh, there's a commitment for a grocery store there no matter what. So they may have to backfill that. And the other component of this is the bay. Starlight is interested in the bay. So um, there's also that pedestrian walkway between Portage Place and the bay that is idle right now. So um, who owns that? And uh, will that be uh, Portage Place? Will that be the city of Winnipeg? Will that be some other entity? So um, I'm not privileged to all what's going on as far as negotiations are concerned. I'm told the ask is at 30 right now. It's gone up to 50 for whatever reason that I don't know. So uh, where this will land, I think probably somewhere in the middle. But at the end of the day, a lot of this, I think, could have been avoided had there been some leadership by all three levels of government. I think when we built down the downtown arena, there was leadership at the highest level by a premier, a mayor, 
and a senior MP. I'm not accusing Vandell of dropping the ball on this one, but the way the Trudeau government works is that this is done more at um, the, the core level of government um, above Dan Vandell, and he ends up having to be the spokesperson for this. When, when the arena downtown was built, you know, now Bell MTS Place, you had Gary Dewar and his senior staff involved in it, Interestingly enough, someone like Angela Matheson, who's over at Center Venture, uh, you had Glenn Murray, who was mayor, who was very interested in this, and you had Ron Zuhamel, a senior MP, who, interestingly enough, towards the end of the deal, got sick. But you had all three very much involved in this. That's not the case with Starlight. And I think that's part of the frustration. When you have a project like this, you need that political leadership to really move things along. And as far as this project is concerned, it's just another ask of government. And there's not a whole lot of politicians that are picking up the phone every other week and saying, how's it going? Richard Cloutier, co-host the news alongside Julie Buckingham weekdays from 3 until 6 on 680 CJOB. Rich, thank you very much, sir. You bet. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. Today we're talking about Non-injury injuries like a paper cut or when you stub your toe or when you actually hurt yourself by doing something stupid. Simon has a great text, Loren. Uh, and this is an injury injury. He writes, you'll love this. I was, quote, goofing around with a buddy's skateboard. I fell face first into the concrete and bit a large chunk of my tongue off. Ouch. I tried to suck it up and not say anything until I realized it wasn't going to stop bleeding to this day. <laughs> I'm still missing a piece of my tongue. Oh, and then Greg wrote, Simon, my tongue is slower reading this. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, 13 stitches later, the bleeding family stopped, but he still has issues going to the dentist. No kidding. You know how they're like, can you keep your tongue down? You're like, you keep my tongue down. It doesn't work. <laughs> I got like a half of them missing. I love when you open up your mouth and they're about to start cleaning your teeth. So how was your weekend? Yeah. Oh, I, 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 these people, the hygienists, must be so good at discerning this uh, uh, speak. I don't know what language it is. It's open mouth language, I guess, is what it is. <laughs> so text us at 204-780-6868. Your non-injury injury stories or your injury stories from doing something dumb like when you hurt yourself when there's really no way you should have hurt yourself for a chance to win two tickets to Zoo Lights at Assiniboine Park at the zoo. But right now we just want to quickly touch on something that was asked to us by one of our listeners and I was kind of wondering the same thing yesterday morning because the Engage MB survey, you had until 9 a.m., yesterday to fill it out and offer your feedback on the proposed loosened restrictions. And we got the announcement at 8 o'clock that they were going to be speaking at 11 o'clock. So the listener says, can someone please tell me what they're asking, make sure that it gets asked at a press conference. How can you take these surveys seriously if the cutoff is at 9 and then at 11 o'clock you give the update, Greg? I think that's an incredibly well-thought-out question, and I don't know if there's a real answer that you're going to get from Dr. Rusin or anybody else that gets asked that question. How do you... I mean, it feels like uh, we kind of caught you there. Uh, maybe not with your pants down, but uh, certainly not anticipating anybody would catch on to that. I think that's an extraordinary view on it. I know tens of thousands of people fill out these surveys, Loren, but when we do that, I, I think we get the sense that we're being listened to. Is yeah, there any proof there that we're not being listened to? 
Well, I mean, there's part of it is more than that. We had heard Monday that these new public health orders and then instructions were coming out Tuesday. So they already knew Monday. They, they had to have been working on it a little bit. But we know there's still a few days before they officially go up. And so language can change and maybe a few things can change by Friday. That said, I think we all knew all along that these surveys were more of just, a, oh, let's just see what the public thinks. Does that mean that because 80% of us said open the restaurants to 100%, they'd suddenly do that? I don't think anyone had that expectation. And I think with these surveys, I'd like to think with this kind of technology that you are getting results. You don't have to wait for that survey to close before you see that much the same as our CGOB poll. We can see all the way through the way people are leaning, right? So, uh, yes. Is it a fair question? Absolutely. What's the point if you're not going to wait until it is completely shut down? At the same time, I don't know how we all felt about them putting much stock in what the public had to say to begin with. So I'm kind of on the fence on this one. Yeah, it could be that they they they, they, they have a good idea with their proposed changes. This is the way sure. we want to go. But let's put it out there just to see if, if anybody has, like, if the yeah. public is completely ah! against one yeah. thing. Like they were going, the, part of the proposed changes was to allow no masks at the gym. And Cynthia Carr, epidemiologist, was pointed in Malika Kareem's report yesterday that the World Health Organization is saying masks at the gym, you shouldn't be wearing them. But... Yesterday, they said, you got to keep wearing your mask at the gym. So maybe that was a result, result of the survey. Yeah, and I know somebody that operates in that world and was so grateful that the province didn't go down that road because of some of the difficulties that you might have with staff and with people coming to the gym that might not feel super comfortable with that being the rule. So uh, I think it's a really good point, and I love when listeners are uh, thinking outside the box like that. So. Let's start this hour by talking about how they're not always supposed to play nice, but the rift between political parties at the Manitoba legislature has grown so bad that six former politicians from all stripes have written an open letter to the premier, leader of the NDP, and leader of the Liberals urging them to work together. Yeah, some of the six are former politicians, so former Conservative MP Shelley Glover, former NDP MPs Bill Blakey, Judy Wasilisha Lease, uh, former Liberal MP Lloyd Axworthy, then there was a political scientist on that list and a few others, and they were all aiming this at all the leaders' time, just as the Manitoba legislature is set to resume its session today. And so, yes, we know there's a pandemic to deal with, but the concern from the folks who signed this letter is that there's also dozens of new bills the Conservatives have been trying to put through for months now, and they're concerned these proposed laws are being presented with little to no information. So, for example, we might have their names like Bill 59, which is the Police Services Amendment Act, or Bill 64, which is the Education Modernization Act. But for many at Broadway and outside, it's not clear what's in those bills or what changes might be on the table, Greg. Steinbeck MLA and Government House Leader Kelvin Gertzen joins us now. Good morning, Mr. Gertzen. Well, good morning. I'm glad the signal's working. Yeah, we appreciate that. So is this the case here as Loren has outlined it and the concerns from these uh, former politicians that these are bills in name only and we're not really seeing the, the entire text of what's contained in these bills? So what normally happens in Manitoba is that bills get introduced in the spring, usually voted on in the summer or in the fall. Um, what's happened, and the opposition can explain why they've done this, but they've used the spring to, to filibuster and to block bills from being introduced. So we tried to introduce bills in December, months earlier than normal, and distribute them, make them public 
in January and February. But that requires permission of the House by both uh, by all three political parties. That permission wasn't granted, so we legally couldn't distribute, make public the bills until the House resumed, which happens today, and the bills will start to be distributed, made public today. So the government was trying to bring these bills forward months earlier than is normal in Manitoba, but wasn't allowed to. So they weren't being hidden. They were actually trying to be brought forward months earlier than is normal in our province. Well, the argument, and as you know this, uh, Mr. Gerson, the argument from the opposition was that, no, hang on, we didn't have any information, and so we were trying to slow things down so we could get that information. So will your government commit to this week putting out the text, having them not just be just the title of the bill, but having some information so not just the politicians that we elect to vote on these things, but the public can see what's in them, because that's the concern. We still don't have that information. What's stopping you from giving that information, and will you at least make sure it's out this week? We committed to putting the information out three months ago. The only reason we couldn't put the information out is it needed all three parties to agree to allow that to happen. And the opposition said, no, we're not going to allow that to happen. So, yes, now that the legislature is back in session, they will start to be made public. But we were trying to get the information out months earlier. So with that information, what's top priority for your government to to move through this year? We have a lot of things non-pandemic on the table. There's questions about education uh, modernization and how that that might change. That was your portfolio not too long ago. I mean, what's what's the top priority in schools? A big top of mind for people right now. Yeah, well, there's there's obviously a lot of priorities, and as you mentioned, the pandemic is top of people's minds. But there's other work the government is doing. So certainly, education reform, reform in the justice system. Today, we're going to be trying to pass. Uh, a, a legislation to allow for more funding for vaccination, for education. That'll come to the legislature this afternoon. So many different priorities. Government continues to function beyond the pandemic, but the pandemic is going to continue to be chief of mind, obviously. But lots on the agenda. Uh, you're going to be seeing that over the next few days. We wish we could have provided it to you months earlier had it been allowed to be brought forward. But I'm looking forward to a good, productive session together with all the other parties This is a democratic institution that is always going to be partisan. That is the nature of this. But we obviously want to see it function uh, in a way that respects the wills of all Manitobans. Uh, Mr. Gertzen, you know, Mm. I think this is an example sometimes. When I first heard about what was going on, I read the open letter. I was certainly under the impression that it was your government that was playing games, not the opposition. Well, what, you know... It's frustrating, I think, for someone who wants to be engaged, like someone it's part of my job, but do these shenanigans not turn off the general public in terms of their engagement and wanting to know more and maybe ultimately turning up at the polls or not? Well, I think they can. I mean, part of the problem is, of course, you know, the rules of the legislature aren't something that people concern themselves with every day, and why should they, right? And they're often rooted in hundreds of years of history, so they don't follow them on a day-by-day basis. Uh, But in this particular situation, there was a desire by the government to get the information out months earlier than is traditional in Manitoba. But I understand why people don't follow that on a day-to-day basis. Probably I've been government house leader for 10 years, but when I leave this job, I won't follow it either. So I understand the public's perspective on that. Um, but this was a desire by the government to get the information out much earlier than its traditional Manitoba. And now, as these bills become made public, they'll still be out earlier, weeks earlier than is normal in Manitoba, because previously the government usually only brought the House back in April. We've been bringing it back in March. So the information will still be out weeks earlier than it normally is. Steinbeck, Himalayan Government House Leader Kelvin Gertzen joining us live on 680 CJOB. Mr. Gertzen, thank you very much, sir. Have a great rest of the day.
We want to continue the conversation on reopening because as we learned yesterday, some good news for many businesses on Friday, like places like the Golf Dome can reopen. I'm rejoiced, rejoiced at that news. Enigma Escapes, uh, Speed World, places like that can open. Expanded capacity in retail and other things like that. But for one piece, of, there's one piece of news that's largely being seen, Greg, as not good news for one industry in particular. Yeah, as we've been hearing, many restaurant owners have been loud and clear over the last few days. An increase to 50% capacity with the household-only rule. Well, it's not going to help anything. And now they're being told they have to check for IDs and that ID must show an address to ensure that all adult patrons dining together, Loren, are from the same household, in fact. Yeah, Ray Louis runs the gates on Roblin and joins us now in the start. Good morning, Ray. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time. I know that there are going to be some restaurants that this might help. Does it help yours to have that increase? Not really. The 50% uh, really is window dressing. Um, We're running at 25% with the household rule. And if the household rule stays in place, we're going to continue to run at 25%. Um, It's immaterial. Will it Even help any? Will it help out any restaurant, uh, Ray? Like, do you think there are any restaurants that will benefit from this fifty percent capacity? I, I don't really think so. I, I haven't heard that there's any anyone jumping up with joy. Uh, what I do think is that uh, it, what this the household rule has done is is told many restaurants not to open, and there are still a lot that just won't open their dining rooms right now. So you told us yesterday the province read you the Riot Act, and I have a print-off of the letter and the communique that you received from the province. Um, this is a long list of rules you have to follow, Ray. And it's interesting because they did quote the public health order, and the public health order was pretty clear that they left it up to us, and I confirmed this with the health department, that they have left it up to us in how we uh, pursue the contact tracing and the verification of household using, quote, reasonable measures, unquote. And then they send us this just before the uh, public uh, announcement yesterday. They sent us uh, a very detailed list of exactly how they want us to exercise our reasonable measures. And it, it went from... Um, verifying that it's per household and what most of the restaurants were doing, we're asking, we were asking. And most people, I'd say almost all people, are completely honest to the point where they had to be turned away at the door because they didn't live in the same household and we just sent them home. This document now says that we have to contact trace uh, each table and check ID at each member of each table. And then actually yesterday, uh, we got a caveat to it, which says that we have to contact trace and get information from each member of each table and check ID for each member of each table. So they revised it halfway through yesterday to change it to be even more stringent. So I, I have been to uh, just two restaurants in, in the last little while, Ray, and I in both cases, this is prior to the change to the public health orders that come into effect Friday, in both places, those restaurants did ask for ID. So are you, are you saying that that was just sort of their choice? It wasn't mandated at that time? And now you're saying it is mandated, that that's part of the process? That's right. Uh, before it was uh, to take reasonable measures such as checking ID. 
Um, and, and that was a, a, a request, I suppose, or posed as a suggestion on one way to check to make sure that the people are from the same household. Uh, out here in Headingley, we tend to know what all the households are. And, you know, we know the couples, they come in. Oh, yeah, they're a couple. They live together. They're just down on Grange Street. And so you know who they are. But but now we have to actually write down their names, write down what ID they presented to us, and make sure that it is all from the same address. Was it a, just, a government form. Was it explained to you how you're supposed to enforce this? If, For example, if you get a disagreeable or perhaps unruly customer who doesn't want to produce an ID? No, that part of the health order is completely uh, void. They they don't actually tell us how to enforce it. They don't give us any uh, uh, indication that we're supposed to physically remove someone from the building if they don't have the right ID. Uh, And that poses a huge problem because it makes us very... um, uh, confrontational with our customers they come in the door and if we're to exhibit good hospitality we don't make them wait outside when it's cold thankfully it's not very right now and we're saying that we either get the hostess who's usually an entry-level younger worker to check id when they have their coats on so that they're not in the dining room the more hospitable way might be to get them into the dining room they're sitting at a table then we check id and if we find out that they don't meet the requirements of the public health order do we then have to remove them? And again, whose job is that to physically remove them from our restaurant? They don't give us any advice on that part of it. Ray, uh, you know, for 25 years or so now, maybe the most difficult part of the job of operating uh, an operation like yours was uh, the service of alcohol and and helping make sure that people didn't overconsume and and get in their vehicle and and I'm sure you've been down that road where you've had some interesting I'll put in quotation marks interactions with folks that you you've had to sort of save them from themselves. This is going to be a whole other level now if you're going to be telling people with a passport as an example that, that comes in, no, it doesn't have their address on it, but. You know, when you're just following the law, people aren't necessarily always that open to having that discussion with you and being reasonable on that front. Exactly. And the really unfortunate part about this is that none of it has been made public by either the health department or the government to actually just read it out loud in black and white to the public to say, hey, we are mandating the restaurants to do this. Instead, they put it on us. And unfortunately, that's going to put us against our customers. And you're right. It's going to pit us against our customers and place us in a position where um, it, it creates the confrontation, whereas if a, a little bit of public education might have avoided, averted all of this. Well, and yep. as I look at this uh, order right now, the email that you sent us yesterday, Ray, it says it is the, uh, the responsibility of the establishment to verify this, i.e. the address, this requirement for checking proof of address is no different than requesting identification for proof of age when serving alcohol. Oh, well, it is different in the sense you're not looking for the address. So I guess if you walk into a restaurant with somebody and you don't say you don't drive, you don't have a driver's license, but you have another valid form of ID, you can't produce your address, then you got to sit at a separate table. Is that uh, what you'll ha- what you have to do? That's right, or you have to leave. Okay. Ray Louie runs the gates on Roblin, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Ray, you reached out to us yesterday on Instagram to share this with us. Thank you very much for contacting us. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me on. Great show, guys.
Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we have two tickets up for grabs for the Zoo Lights Festival at Assiniboine Park. We've been asking you to text us at 204-780-6868 on either the non-injury injuries that we suffer, like when you bang your elbow or you bang your knee. It doesn't, you know, you didn't hurt yourself, but it feels like you've just been shot. Or instances where you really did hurt yourself when you did something stupid. So we've got three techs here, two runners-up, and a winner. Greg, start us with Jim the Bailiff. Well, based on a lot of these messages and our own stories, how is it that evolution has not eliminated the big toe? (laughs) It seems as though the big toe is only good for causing grief. Jim the Bailiff says this, I dropped a round toothpick on my uh, carpet, walking in bare feet. The toothpick on the carpet was wedged up in a slight upright position. I caught the toothpick under my big toe thumbnail Ah! noticing this turning white going to the bathroom sitting on the edge of the tub. I saw a small piece of the toothpick sticking out. (laughs) I only had two options. Grab the needle nose pliers, pull it out (laughs) fast so I wouldn't feel any pain, hoping not to break it off into a smaller piece which would lead me to going to the hospital to have them remove it or to pull it out slowly and feel the pain. The option I chose was the pull it out slowly was not a good way to start the day. Thank you, Jim. Loren. Ugh. Okay, this one is uh, goes back a bit. 55 years ago, they write, I was three years old. I was racing on my tricycle. I wiped out. When I got home crying, my next-door neighbor was having lunch with my dad. He was an ambulance driver, loaded me up, and off we went to the hospital with the sirens going. I got one stitch in my baby toe. Really don't think this would fly in this day and age. But man, what a way to go as a kid, eh? You're like, oh my gosh, this is serious. Although, would that not just taint things going forward? Every injury, you, like, you might have something more serious and you'd be wondering why you weren't being chunked into an ambulance. Right? Guys, yeah. don't you remember when I stubbed my toe? I got to, come on. Like, where's the 911? This is our winning text because, A, its simplicity made me laugh hysterically, but it really is one of, this is like almost a perfect non-injury injury. This listener says, I thought I broke my nose once. I went to a walk-in to get it looked at because it was so sore and it looked swollen. It turned out I had a pimple inside my nostril. That's the winning text because those really do hurt and they are impossible to access. There's like no way you can get to it to do anything about it. You just have to suffer. I'm getting tears in my eyes just thinking about the last time I had one of those. You're right. They're impossible to get out. You you can't maneuver. It's tough enough to get one digit in there. Yeah. Never mind two. Yeah. <laughs> Not to get too graphic. Yeah, there's only so you far. You need a you tool. Can, there's only so far you can kind of flip your nostril out. You can't do it inside this whole out. Segment's too graphic. From the toe splinter to this right now. Oh my lord. Woo. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, a reminder that tomorrow is the 55th anniversary of the big blizzard of 1966. If you have any memories of that, we'd love to talk to you tomorrow about it. So shoot us a text to 204-780-6868 and uh, share your memories. We had one uh, listener, Robin St. James, saying, That is the storm by which he measures all other storms. If you have memories of that, let us know. 204-780-6868. In the meantime, there are several major projects on the drawing board in our city. Projects which could have a dramatic impact on how our city grows. 
Yeah, and as we watch our city grow, I think so many have questions about where and which parts of the city that are under consideration. Are there parts of the city that you pay more attention to than others? And that brings me to the downtown, Gray, because, you know, this morning we've been trying to bring you up to speed on the latest in the Starlight Development proposal to bring our listeners up to speed with what's been happening with Portage Place. And as we heard at 7.07, Richard Cloutier believes this deal is not dead. In fact, he thinks that Starlight really also might have an interest in the Bay as well, Greg. Mm-hmm. Interesting for sure and fodder for our conversation with our next guest, architect, columnist, chair of the Centre Venture Board and creative director at Number 10 Architectural Group. He's Brent Bellamy. Good morning, Brent. Good morning. So that Portage Place deal, I don't know how much uh, you know about the ins and outs of it. Money aside, mixed with the uncertain future of the Bay, how important is it to do this right? And what does right look like to you for these these iconic properties, really, is what they are, are they not? You know, when you look at the Bay and Portage Place right now, they sort of dominate the western edge of downtown, and they represent a million square feet of floor area which is an incredible amount. And so I don't think there's any way downtown will ever be successful without those two buildings being successful. They're critical. They're just so large. Portage Place is three blocks, city blocks long. Like it's such a dominant piece of the downtown that we need them to to succeed, to to find success in our downtown. And so I really hope that, um, you know, discussions with Starlight are, are continuing and, you know, it's a big ask, but hopefully something can be worked out because it's a critical piece. And, I don't know about taking on the bay as well. You know, I think the first half a million square feet is a big enough challenge. But I, I think um, I think the future for both of those buildings is is a multi-use um, building, like not single-use retail, sort of the way they were designed, but breaking them down and making them a little bit more community-oriented. Maybe you know, filling the needs of the Central Park area or or you know the de- the growing downtown residential. Um, population and and you know the area around the university of winnipeg there's more people living in the area rapid transit is is coming through there i mean i think they're both positioned really well to to have find a new life as as more mixed-use buildings than they were in the past you know brent a year ago ahead of this pandemic there was all so many reasons to be optimistic about the future of the downtown in terms of just some of the different exciting projects that were taking place even though we knew that changes had to come to portage place and that change was on the way for hudson bay i'm curious in your mind is there is there a timeline to which we need to see redevelopment on these massive spaces as you say a million square feet because otherwise it you can pull into the downtown especially if you're coming in uh, say from the airport or coming in from the west and it it will have a, a decidedly more depressing feel as soon as you see those boarded up windows and the longer that drags on the longer the feeling the attitude that it's not money worth investing which is just not the case I don't know if you've seen the the bay in the last week it has a distinct uh, yeah. Detroit, Michigan, 2003 vibe going on right now. Right. And, and, and it's sort of, I worry yeah. about that bleeding into other properties, Brent, oh, no too, question. right? And then you're at the bay and you look across the street and the, the big, huge staple is gone from Portage Place. So that whole end of Portage Place is completely empty. So um, I totally agree with you. It's not just about... Um, I think they're, they're, I think speed is going to be a, a real issue here because it's it, those are like the anchors in a shopping center. You know, they're, they have such a, a weight in the downtown that I don't think we're going to see optimism and investment happening until those two 
big anchors are seen to be moving forward because even all the little storefronts, it's heartbreaking to see. Like I, I walk around downtown every day. It's absolutely heartbreaking to see how many for lease signs there are, how many shops are gone. We didn't have a lot of shops to begin with, and they're just struggling. And it really, I think when people come back downtown, whenever this pandemic is over, they're going to be shocked at what's here because it's it's struggling. And, and we need to have a concerted community effort with government and, and private development and entrepreneurship and the universities and really have a collective plan to to figure out what we're going to do as we move forward. Because downtown is critical to the health of the entire city. It's not just about downtown. It's about the whole city and the whole province, to be honest. Well, man, some have said that, uh, you know, if why should we care about downtown? I don't ever go downtown. I don't live downtown. But regardless of where you live in the city, uh, downtown is the engine of any city, is it not? You know, it's, it's a huge contributor to the GDP of the province. Um, but not even just economics. Think about when you travel to another city. Where do you go? You don't go to the suburban, um, you know, Costco or IKEA. You go downtown, and it's really the face of the city. When we're competing with other cities for, uh, you know, investment and tourism and uh, immigration, downtown is really w- w- how people judge your city. And if we if our if we don't invest in the downtown and make it a, a place that not just we're proud of, but everybody who comes here is proud of, I think we're going to really fall behind other cities and, and regret it in the future. Yeah, you, know, you make a good point. If Winnipegers don't want to go downtown, how are you, do you expect yeah, people exactly. to to embrace our community as a whole when that's likely the place other than the airport that they're going to most closely associate uh, yeah. with their visit and their time in our city? Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, Polo Park because, you know, Polo Park sort of when it opened started in Winnipeg, at least, that migration toward the suburbs, and that was the first mm-hmm. suburban shopping mall, and has a gi- and has had a gigantic impact on life in Winnipeg. It was the epicenter for a lot of things, not only shopping, but the arena and stadium were there, and so that's undergone some massive changes over the last two decades already. When you think about how long uh, Bell MTS Place has been open, I think fifteen years now, yeah. and so that shift now, Polo Park, you know, the future of the shopping mall has to be very uncertain. So Cadillac Fairview and Shindico saying, hey, we want to build some apartments here. The airport authority said not so fast and now a report yesterday that says maybe that might work out after all. What's your take on that? Is that genuine infill development that far west in our city? You know, it's critical. Um, This is such a long overdue change and I hope it it happens quickly because, you know, we can't just lock the whole Portage or Polo Park area into um, 1990 ideas of city building. It's uh, retail changes. It's changing right now with online shopping. Bricks and mortar is is evolving, and that neighborhood needs to be able to evolve as well. And having it's got major access to downtown. It's it's right on major streets. It's a perfect place to have high density development. And and I will say, I don't think people really understand this change with the airport uh, um, plan. Is, is much bigger than Polo Park. It's the, the restrictions that the airport has on development in the city extend all the way to Grant Park and Pembina Highway. They, they include all of River Heights, half of Wolseley, the West End. It's a huge swath of the city that's um, being impacted by the development restrictions from the airport. So being able to, to change that will, will allow more development along Portage Avenue, and, you know, across in River Heights and, and even at, at Grand Park, as I say. So I, I really see this as a, a long overdue step to to move um, the city forward and, and 
bring higher density to to neighborhoods like Polo Park that can really it's connected to the West End, you know, the the best neighborhood in the whole city. So I, I really see it as an opportunity to to do smart infill growth. I love the shout out to the West End because we've been doing our own here on the show when we just had them on uh, last week talking about some of the growth they've seen even in this pandemic or at least the changes and how they're trying to move forward. And, and it's proof, Brent, in just this conversation as we go from downtown to Polo Park back to the West End. You mentioned River Heights, how interconnected all these neighborhoods are. They're not, they're, they're not standalones. And so part of that connection too is how we get from one place to another. And I think if this winter has shown us anything, skating, skiing, walking, cycling, on the Assiniboine and Red Rivers was so popular over the past uh, seven, eight weeks. And yes, the Centennial River Trail is now closed, but it's showed how we like to move from place to place in different ways that we maybe haven't tried before. <laughs> is this the thing that might get us finally saying, yes, active transportation needs to have more of our attention? Or am I just, are we just pipe dreaming here? Uh, I hope we're not <laughs> pipe dreaming because I'll add to that the open streets in the, in the summer and spring and fall of last year, they were wildly successful. And everybody saw how amazing it is to have a city and a neighborhood that isn't completely focused on driving, to introduce um, healthy ways to move around your city. And, and it went right to the to river trail. And if you looked at how people were using that river trail, I would say 80% of the people weren't skating. They were riding their bike. They were walking. They were skiing. So it's, you know, people have a hard time connecting things like bike lanes and sidewalks to the river trail. But what it says to me is that people can go outside and enjoy um, their city and not be extreme, as our favorite councillor from North Kildonan likes to likes to call cyclists in the winter. But you know, where we can be outside and be active, and it actually is enjoyable. And so, if we build our city to en- to encourage that with bike lanes and sidewalks and you know pedestrian bridges across the river connecting neighborhoods, there's there's all kinds of things we can do that will invite people to go outside and use their city in the wintertime, and they will. Winter cities across the world have, have seen that. If you build it, they come. It's, it's an old trope, but it's absolutely true. Montreal is the top cycling city in North America. Montreal, it gets twice as much snow as Winnipeg does. And so if they can do it, we can do it too. But with the, the river trail, that's sort of a, a piece of infrastructure that just kind of gets built for us, right? I mean, the the river freezes and suddenly we can walk on it and they do a great job of grooming it, of course. And I use it every single day that it was open. But for the summer, in terms of adding this extra infrastructure, I mean, wouldn't that cost? And I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but wouldn't that cost like a lot of money? It's so minor. That's the, that's the, the misnomer in the whole thing. Compared to car infrastructure, active transportation infrastructure is dirt cheap. You know, a bike lane is adding a curb they, I was watching them pour the, the Gary Street bike lane last year, and they were doing like half a block a day because it's just a concrete curb. They would move the formwork down. It's really simple. And, you know, even pedestrian bridges across the river, you, a, a car bridge costs two, $300 million. A pedestrian bridge can cost, you know, five to $8 million. There, it's In the grand scheme of things, um, they're dirt cheap compared to... Um, car infrastructure and it has such a huge impact on like you say you need to have the infrastructure there to invite people to use it and people will use it if we do build for them brent i want to talk to you about this maybe another time just i live in north kildonan as you know and i'm right across the street from kilcona park but i'm separated by highway 59 lajramodier and so i feel disconnected from that park and all the offerings that that i should be enjoying and i've often thought 
that an active transportation bridge across 59 would connect my community with our community park. No question. Rivers, highways, there's all kinds of ways that our neighborhoods are are disconnected. And if we just spent a little bit of time connecting them, all those amenities would be shared between different communities. Brent Bellamy is an architect. He's a columnist. He's chair of the Center Venture Board, creative director at Number 10 Architectural Group. And we love chatting with you, Brent. Thanks so much for joining us as always. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Anytime. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.